The SaaS Universe podcast is brought to you by Efficient Capital Labs. Realize your future revenue today. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the SaaS Universe podcast. Today, Joseph Abraham, founder and CEO of Startup Atom, gets in conversation with Zeus Danbura, the co-founder and CEO at BridgeUp. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Zias. Thank you so much for taking the time and, and joining us today. So it's really nice to have you. We've been talking a lot and um, I mean, I was quite intrigued by your startup because, um, you know, what you're doing is not well known. Uh, it's catching fire right now. Uh, and everyone's talking about the winter, right? So, um, I mean, y- your your startup does a lot to warm people in the winter. So, that's how I see your startup, right? So, um, thank you so much for taking the time. And if you can help our listeners um, in in quick words, you know, understand what does BridgeUp do, who is it for, and um, what's the product all about? Sure, sure. So, of course, first of all, thanks for having me on here, Joe. Really appreciate it and uh, glad to be here. Uh, I think the best way you put it is that, yes, there is a impending VC winter going as we speak right now. Stocks, both uh, private equity markets as well as crypto are crashing as we speak. God knows what it's going to be by the end of this call. Uh, so uh, what BridgeUp does uh, to a large extent is does provide that kind of security, the kind of warmth which is needed to a lot of these companies where they have to bear the winter months with a level of uncertainty, not knowing exactly what the outcome after the next 12, 15 months is going to be, right? We've seen down markets stretch for anywhere between one to 2.5 years. And where BridgeUp does work is not just in the down markets. It works in the other markets as well. But um, a lot of the companies that we've been seeing come to us right now are companies which are looking for capital to extend their runway so that they don't have to accept capital at terms which are not workable for them. Right, and don't have to take a down round. Uh, don't have to raise at the same as before because you risk alienating a lot of the investors who kept faith in you across time, especially venture capital investors. And by providing them access to this kind of capital, we ensure that they are able to continue their operations over a period of time, which a either might help them improve their metrics in order to raise at the valuation they want or B, help them endure at least to a period of time where this slump ends and they could be accessing venture capital at, again, better terms. Right. Awesome. So very quickly, um, how did this idea you know, originate? So how did you guys come and think about this idea? I mean, I do understand uh, that you and Jahangir are lawyers. I don't know about the third uh, founder, you know, co-founder back at uh, Bridger. But uh, how did how did you stumble upon this idea, and and how did you end up working on this? Sure, sure. So actually, it's three of us: uh, Jahangir, myself, and Deepin. Right. Uh, Deepin's the CTO, so. He okay, he's, a, the he's a techie. Okay, got it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we, <laughs> us being lawyers, obviously knew we needed a techie at some point in time. <laughs> and we thought it was the best time, obviously, to reach out to them right at the start. We actually conceptualized uh, this sometime start of 2021, where we decided that we wanted to enter the space, which is familiar to us, which is fintech. Uh, the familiarity uh, comes from a legal background where we've you know done a lot of deals 
which include a lot of transactions, understood them, broken down different kind of business models to understand their weaknesses, where they're vulnerable, knowing where in contracts, uh, you know, you've hidden things and kind of put them in to understand at what point in time in the future you might be able to jump on them is something that comes uh, with the game. And uh, we feel like we are best placed to enter this space. Obviously, the idea of bridge up uh, is not something that's new. You know, this is not something that I would say which is also unique to us or also unique to the market in the world. It's not. It's already been done by startups out west like Pipe, Capjays, etc. And the formula, idea, and the, the concept was formulated, but not Indianized. Uh, that's where we felt the opportunity was. Doesn't work the same way as it works in India, as it works in the Western markets. Uh, capital is not provided the same way. There are NBFCs and regulated entities which are only allowed to lend capital. Um, there is a lot of intermediary and intermediation that happens, which is much more. Data does not come as clean as it does. You don't just have a connection to play. You need to have a connection to profiles in India, which gives you access to bank statements. Uh, what do you do after that? You get access to accounting statements. It's not APIs for everything. And the real opportunity in India is not just limited to the startup space. It's also limited to the SMEs, right? Uh, one in every 10 gets access to debt capital in India. Uh, the opportunity space even addressed for 15% of the remainder of the market that's underutilized right now or underapproached or underbanked is a $15 billion opportunity sitting, waiting for someone to just come in and provide capital to the plethora of companies here. Obviously, we feel that to start, we want to provide it to companies with much more predictable streams of revenue, which is in the recurring revenue space. Uh, while in the US, again, the differentiation is that the SaaS market is huge. In India, the SaaS market is decent size, but the services market is much larger right? Not accessible to venture capital also. I mean, would not access venture capital. They're inherently profitable companies, which might not be able to provide explosive growth to their venture capitalists. So VC is not interested and neither is the founder of the services business, which is exactly where BridgeUp comes in. As is true to our name, we provide the bridge between the capital and the company and we provide it at best terms. Uh, from the lending side, we speak to a lot of lenders and showcase our instrument to them, which we have, again, Indianized to a large extent. Uh, what is in it for them? How do we provide the security? How do they ensure that the returns are made available? Because let's face it, um, access to litigation, we know, is very, very low in India. I mean, you could be stuck uh, for years in a lawsuit with absolutely no recourse. So just a contract is not good enough. Uh, there are Nash mandates. There are multiple other things which are taken into place. There are escrows. Uh, we've made sure that the instrument is one in which it makes the most sense for the lender as well as for the company uh, because for the company access to capital of this size at the rates is not heard of and for b the lenders they are not used to an instrument which is not secured against traditional securities like immovable property right immovable property in india which is used as traditional means of security is an illiquid collateral to a large extent. Uh, liquidity on that is not always certain, which means it's more like a warm blanket kind of uh, security where the end lender feels safe in the fact that he has something rather than nothing. But if you, the person defaults, the time in which you're going to take in order to transfer it, sell it, etc., is not exactly conducive to doing business either. And lenders now are understanding, finally, the security in a receivable and the predictability of that particular receivable, which is exactly where Bridgeup comes in. Great. Yes. So you saw the opportunity uh, at hand. So how did you know that this 
you know, is a good opportunity to jump. Uh, I mean, when was, uh, you know, in a time and moment where you realized that it got validated, this whole idea got validated for you? Uh, well, I can think back to sometime around October, November, and we had just rolled out our POC. Uh, and, you know, we were reaching out to companies. We had a few lenders who were interested in checking it out, wondering, you know, okay, is there really something here? Uh, we were very clear we do not want to take debt in our own name, uh, or at least on us. A, we obviously are not a regulated entity, so cannot lend, and two, we don't provide any FLDGs to any of the lenders on our platforms. So when we really realized that this is scalable is by seeing the number of companies that came on on day one uh, needing capital. Uh, obviously, we had reached out to a few earlier. And the thing is that we expected a lot to be SaaS, but maybe 10% of those companies were SaaS. All the other companies, we were companies we were never expecting. Like uh, there was co-working spaces, there was EV charging, uh, there was plain vanilla uh, services, IT, a whole host of different companies um, whose revenues were predictable, were periodic, and we could upfront them. So I would say that that's when we realized that, okay, there is definitely uh, a huge idea here. There's a huge potential here. Uh, the market that's not addressed is humongous. Like I'll give you an example. Um, there was a company that came to us 20 crores in revenue, 5 crores in profitability. Uh, they had to go to 7 NBFCs in order to get 2.5 crores of debt, cumulatively. Because each would just refuse to budge beyond a certain amount. Um, it, it wasn't really that the numbers didn't add up. It wasn't that at all. It was just that they individually did not want to take on more uh, only because they had these certain preconceived mindsets that they cannot go above a certain amount unsecure because this Chinese wall has been created between secure and unsecure, where you say the word unsecure and it's also bad. And you say the word secure and it's mentally also good. And lenders over a large period of time, because of their cognitive bias built up uh, by the use of this language, are very wary of saying unsecure more than 30 lakhs at one time. And that's the kind of uh, bias that we are looking at breaking or looking at evolving by using a data-centric approach to evaluation and showcasing the proof in the pudding if required by saying that, listen, this is the company, this is how much we funded them. This is the percentage of their revenue that we funded them for. This is the security against that. And this is how it turned out. And that's when we are seeing more and more lenders on board. Got it. So. Uh, how did you build your early team uh, to, to make this happen and to ensure that you're able to like service these people you know, sure. seamlessly? So uh, our early team was firstly just me and Jangirin back in April 21 uh, when we really you know, put down the roots. Um, we first decided to reach out to the most relevant people that we needed to. Uh, one of them through one of our mutual friends uh, connected us to Deepin, who's the CTO of the company. And we really hit it off. He is uh, our age. Uh, he has similar interests to us. And we really felt like, okay, this is something that we could definitely work together doing. Uh, Deepen uh, is an eccentric character himself, though very silent and quiet. He's, a, he's, he's an absolute rager. <laughs> uh, and uh, we thought that we definitely uh, could see a future, you know, working together. And that's when we uh, started uh, uh, onboarding Deepin, right? And that was the like first co-founder level position that needed to be built and was the most important. 
from there on, we reached out to Parijat actually, who's the head of uh, risk and capital at Punjab. And uh, he was also introduced to us by a dear friend. And uh, we decided that obviously Parijat with his experience, uh, both in fintech and credit ratings, he's worked for a credit rating agency and IB approved credit rating agency before and led that team from its founding team size. And we thought that, okay, this would be a plethora of experience, which obviously we do not come with. And that's when we put it down. Uh, obviously, from there, we built on and on. And today, we are a small team, still very small, 25-man team. But um, we are expanding, I would say, uh, because as you know, while we're talking, the demand for this product is just going up because of what's happening all around the world. Yep, absolutely. Great. And so I'm just going to go back to um, hiring your CTO and the co-founder role, right? So what were you looking for? Because it's very interesting uh, as a use case in SaaS, you see that it's usually the developers who start a company and then go and look for co-founders from sales, marketing, product, and so on and so forth, right? So in, in your case, you you had an idea and then you went um, hunting to marry a CTO. So how did that go right. about? Like, what were you looking for? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I've always faced this problem, even with the first startup, uh, being from a non-tech background, wanting to be in the startup world, you feel largely like an outsider. Well, because you are, you're not part of the tech world. You're not part of a large part of the VC world either. So, you know, uh, generally you feel like you are looking in from the outside to a large extent. Uh, we feel that obviously every position and every experience comes with its own advantages and disadvantages and the way to achieve some sort of consensus is to marry them, right? You you see what you don't have and marry it into what you do need and find that. That's exactly where we saw in Deepin. Um, uh, what we realized is that uh, he's a founder himself because he started his own IT services company and profitable running for like two to four crores a year, sometimes more. He was happy to sell his own stake in that because that's how much he believed in the idea. So the first thing was, um, <laughs> we were like, Jangir and I were lost. We are like, who do we call like to understand who is the right person? Is it a front-end developer, back-end developer? Is it an architect? Who is an architect? <laughs> it was all like Wild West here, right? Because all you need is like, okay, we need a CTO. But we had no idea what, what in a CTO we need. And we needed the CTO to tell us what in them we need, but we couldn't say that out loud, right? Because you can't obviously say, hey, you know what? I need somebody, but you need to tell me what all I need from this somebody. It was, <laughs> it was quite crazy. So it was had a lot to do with understanding a CTO who's maybe run his own business, who comes from that uh, perspective. He was obviously a CTO with other startups before, which he was the co-founder of. So that added to the fact that he'd come with the knowledge of being in a, in the startup world, creating products from scratch. And three, working for a, or leading a services company, he had actually had the unique position of building multiple different products across verticals. Like uh, he was uh, making the Android version for uh, Rebel Foods. He was uh, one of the uh, early, early stage members of their team. And actually, they had outsourced it to him to build. And they were so happy. I think that guy even offered him a chief engineering or chief or a CTO role early days for Rebel Foods, which is now a unicorn. And um, at that time, DPN had turned it down because he was like, no, I just want to work uh, on my own or basically build something of my own. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's how I think we realized that this is the guy, not so, more by his not so much by his actual tech knowledge, but by his personality, by understanding what he had done before and then trusting that okay, this is the right guy for us. Nice, because I've I always been intrigued, right? Because 
um but this whole idea that how do you go find a technology co-founder it's easy if they if you know them as friends and it's easy to think through build uh sync up and brainstorm together great so you're building this company you found the right kind of people now to build further you need to have the kind of traction and scale so how did you go about getting your first you know few customers um and i i understand that day one was good for you but how did day 3 day 4 turn up for you <laughs> so a lot of early clientele was through friends uh knowing someone i'm just going to be honest here we didn't have really a lot of marketing going on or a lot of sales activities we had no one in marketing sales obviously we were a 5 6% team at that point in time and we're looking to really do a poc that's that's out so get 3 to 4 people uh, at that point in time uh we also uh, reached out to a lot of companies offering uh, this kind of a solution early days they were very happy for it and uh, when we did reach out to them uh, and offering that okay you know this is what we can do for you they seemed really eager so what we did make a mistake early days is thinking okay if we have the companies the lenders will obviously want to take part in these companies completely off fully wrong um we actually ended up spending a lot of time trying to get the light lenders for these kind of companies uh convincing them was much harder obviously than the person uh, receiving the capital and um when we did get our early stage companies uh they were also like hey what's happening you pitch me now when's the capital coming in <laughs> and uh we were like yeah, yeah we're definitely working on it we'll get it back to you as soon as possible and the first companies took ages to close uh because we realized that okay this is such a unique product and to be able to get the right guys in is going to be really really hard and that's when we uh closed the first two three companies through at least one uh lender who came on board but then we stopped all reach out and we said first let's just make sure we have sufficient liquidity and that's where we ended up concentrating a lot on say december jan of last year got it as actually coming to that question but you answer the question which is like the chicken and the egg you know question yeah. as to how, how do you solve that but but i i'm glad that you answered that um and how do you raise money for yourself to to sustain scale you needed money so i, right. I, I mean congrats on your raise so how did you raise so we actually uh, ended up speaking to steer advisors who uh, led our round or not led our round uh were the ones doing the ib for our round uh and we spoke to them sometime around december they were um, really highly efficient and really really quick to move uh they had cornered down a lead i would say within a week maybe less and uh they were really invested in what we were building had faith in it and we decided that okay this is the right way to go um obviously uh like everybody else we reached out to uh, other vcs uh, had multiple conversations some good some not so good uh, things were moving i would say fairly predictably in that sense um there was some interest from some places some not so much interest from others and when we reached out to steer things moved really fast uh we reached out to the lead who was uh, mr darshan patel who came on board and led the round he himself took complete faith in the product because he's a huge believer in fixed income returns has his own npfc himself obviously has created products from zero to like billions in dollars in sales from nothing right so so nobody better we felt to lead our round than somebody who's not built one but multiple products from scratch uh, not only exited them but created profitable like billion dollar companies 
over time. So we thought that this is a real match. We met went and met him in person, um, explained the model. He was fully convinced, and that's when we really landed. I think our first uh, investor. Obviously, once we landed the lead, we got a lot more interest in terms of uh, parties who wanted to. So closing out the round, actually, the, the, uh, Mr. Patel was happy to close out the round himself. Uh, there were a lot of other interested parties who came on at that time, wanting in. Yeah, some who had said no earlier also wanted to come in at that point in time because there was a lead. I mean, that's how really the venture capital industry works. And yeah, that's that's some really of them, nice to hear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we closed some of them. Obviously, we will reach out to in future rounds. Awesome. And what's your favorite metric at this given point of time as a founder? So, what do you measure every single day? My favorite metric is right now number one is how much month on month are you lending out as a business i don't think there is uh, any more important but if i had to combine that with just one more one metric i would say how much and to how many companies that that is the real like ratio if you're taking 10 companies and giving larger amounts fine you'll have a huge disbursement uh, but uh, does that mean that there's product market fit Maybe, maybe not. Product market fit is something which is a vague uh, metric or not a metric, which is a vague uh, uh, assignment, right? Like what is true product market fit? I mean, you'll get 10 different answers for it. In my mind, it's lending out to at least 100 companies. Uh, doesn't matter what amount, because if you found 100 companies in India to lend out to, uh, then you know that there is a need for a product like this. And uh, I would say we are quite close to that number and uh, definitely the other metric which i earlier alluded to the amount of capital lent out is something that is very very important because uh, we are not going to follow the loss making business model uh, we're very clear from day one uh, we kept our burn to probably an all-time minimum our team strength is not like that strong and we're going to keep growing in a way in which we believe is sustainable over a large period of time. Uh, we are not and going to, and we're blessed with uh, investors at this stage who truly believe that we don't need to grow in that way, where burning money is the right way to go. So we feel like we would be able to turn a profit quite fast at this rate. And uh, when we do, we obviously have grand plans to increase the revenue through three to four different channels that are in the works as we speak. Yeah, awesome. So I think we spoke a lot about Bridge Up. Uh, we need to talk a little bit about you and your journey as an entrepreneur. So very quickly, sure. you can share with us what's your journey. You know, what has your journey been like, and how did you actually uh, brush, you know, against this whole idea, and how did this strike you? Okay. So my journey as an entrepreneur complicated. I started out as you know as a lawyer, uh, working in a law firm. Uh, I worked in, I met my co-founder interning in a law firm, Jangir. We've been friends since 2010, nine actually. And uh, we met at a law firm uh, doing our internship there together at Mullah & Mullah. Uh, that is a law firm in Bombay. We were both litigators at that time, or at least working for uh, other litigators, understanding the business, learning the ropes. Uh, from there on, we moved different paths. I went to another law firm. He went to another law firm. Obviously, we stayed in touch. We are good friends the whole time. And... Uh, uh, we learned new things uh, at that time. Uh, from there on, he continued working for that particular law firm. I went to do my master's in the US in Georgetown. That's when I came about or at least was introduced to a whole different world of 
different people. Mm, there are a lot of uh, unique cultures present over there. You would learn much more than what you'd expect to uh, over there, especially about how different businesses operate, how different cultures work in different parts of the world. And I felt uh, to a large extent while I was in the program, I didn't want to do law anymore. It's weird. You go for a master's, you decide, okay, I don't really care about law <laughs> because you just felt there were so many more exciting avenues to explore. And I mean, you just were, for the lack of a better word, just going to be like, fuck it and leave. <laughs> so we, that's what we wanted to do. At least I wanted to do. I wanted to quit as soon as possible. Uh, another uh, friend of mine, uh, name is Rajneesh, actually, who was with me in the master's. We both decided midway through that this was not going to be for us. We both wanted other things in life. And we decided okay, we're just going to finish out the semester and then start our own company in India. So we came back to India, uh, started our own uh, company. It was an online uh, skill-based games company. And um, we completely bootstrapped that company, uh, did almost everything possible under the sun that's wrong, that you should not do. Uh, uh, by that, I mean, uh, first large mistake, we outsourced the tech, took on massive tech tech, uh, didn't realize the people who we had outsourced it to and their capabilities kind of had blind faith in them. And that's the first uh, rookie mistake that you make as a, a non-tech founder, underestimating the amount of work that is going to be required. Uh, white labeling definitely didn't serve us good. We learned that the hard way over the span of the two years. But in that time, what we did is uh, created customers from scratch in the most inorganic and the craziest fashion by flying all over India to meet groups of players who were playing on different kind of um, apps and convincing them to join ours. Uh, so that was something that we did quite well. Uh, changed up a lot of the, the principal uh, revenue generating uh, part of the game and turned it on its head and tried to attract customers that way. Uh, learned a lot about what actually does and does not attract customers. Um, also learned about what our marketing costs would look like. Pitched a lot of VCs at that time all unsuccessfully, but learned a lot doing that as well. Um, and uh, that's when we realized that uh, we were making some sort of revenue, obviously, by doing this. There were 2020 hit, the lockdown came in, and we got a call uh, from a random person. I got a call, and the call said, Hi, is this yes? I said, Yes. And uh, the guy said, Do you know? Or, Ikka.in is what the website was called. I said, do you know who's running this? I said, yes, we are. He said, no, no, the white label provider. I said, no. Uh, so uh, he said, this guy who you've given it to promote, uh, he has actually stolen the entire tech from me. And we were like, what? Yeah. So we were like, wait, what? Hold on. <laughs> what are you talking about? We've checked everything and there is no such issue here. You know, like what, what are you alluding to? and uh, realized later on that this guy uh, apparently had a heart attack two years ago. This guy used to work for him. Entire software, entire source code stolen. All his clients along with it started his own company uh, with the same clients because this guy was basically bedridden. Uh, and uh, that's when we realized that. And he, kind of, he, he started saying, us, uh, how long has it actually taken for him to make this change? And I said, like, an eternity, like the last year and a half, and it's still not done. He's like, yeah, because he doesn't know how. And we're like, everything he started saying started actually adding up because these are all the problems that we had. And that's when we realized, wow, this is messed up. And um, weirdly enough, 
uh, as you would have it right at that point in time, we were in talks with someone who wanted to buy it off straight up from us because we were in around May to um, June 2020, which was right when the lockdown started. A lot of non-traditional businesses stopped making cash, right? And this, a lot of inorganic growth came into online skill-based games. And um, a lot of people were playing at that time, time, a lot of interested customers. Obviously, we couldn't keep them happy because a lot of the tech was not in our control. And we were just at a frustration point and we were like, okay, you know what, we'll, we'll sell it. At least we're making some decent amount of cash. And then when those talks were at an advanced stage, we receive a call saying the software <laughs> is stolen. And we were like, we have to obviously mention this. So the next meeting, we were like, okay, I don't think the sale is going to work out because this is the case. This is what we've just learned recently and it's working, but there is ongoing litigation on that guy's company because of this. And uh, I don't know how far we can work until that guy was still very interested, obviously, in buying it off. Uh, it did actually still happen that he ended up buying it off, but it was a different deal where a large portion of the customers were bought off in a way in which you would pay on a per cash level, like a Think of like Facebook WhatsApp deal, which was measured against like a per customer usage like that. But a lot of the customers never ended up being on, like continue to be on the platform. They would have to leave and uh, work with a competitor or another platform or continue playing there. And we would ensure the smooth transition. And a lot of the payoff was, I mean, you know, good. drafted around the fact that we would make sure that the transition would happen successfully. <laughs> that, that's a nice uh, wrap on how, how, I mean, how did you journey? So very quickly, uh, I have a rapid five, five for you, like uh, a rapid fire, five questions for you, right? So it's the first question is, what are you reading right now? Reading, listening, watching right now? So uh, I was reading Sapiens, actually, the last book. And uh, I have a notorious habit of not finishing books and jumping onto other books. Uh, so as we speak, I have like three to four books littered around the most interesting of which is, uh, Sapiens. Definitely. Awesome. And is there any CEO or a leader that you are following or studying? I, one particular, I don't, I don't say follow a study at all. None. I feel like one has to chart out their own path and the, what happens when you try to for the lack of a better word, mimic another or find faith in the other is you realize that you have uh, created a hero out of someone you know absolutely nothing about, which is where the phrase uh, don't ever meet your heroes comes from because there's a chance you'll end up being disappointed. And I know that because not because I have a lot of idols, but um, I would say that I'm wary of having any such idols in the CEO world because the outside persona that you see, the outside speak that you see uh, isn't exactly what you want to learn from because that's the marketing material right and i guess being a lawyer or having been in different kinds of places where you see different cases all the time you realize trust won't come easy especially in what somebody's saying and that's why having one model as such for ceos definitely doesn't work for me but i am a huge fan and follower like if i had an idol it would say it would be sir alex ferguson because i'm a huge manchester united fan but of course apart from that I read, read his book, Leadership. I think it's one of the must-read for all CEOs. And uh, I think you can learn a lot about leading something, creating something efficiently, scalably, uh, and successfully from a lot of his life's learnings and preachings. 
Hmm. Great. So question number three is, uh, what's your favorite SaaS app at this point of time? My favorite SaaS app at this point in time, I would say like, I mean, it's, it's a function of what I would use <laughs> really. Uh, but I definitely use a lot of Zoom, obviously. Uh, I use a lot of uh, Notion. Um, I would Google Notion Calendar, <laughs> obviously. Uh, I would say that I wouldn't be able to function without a lot of these uh, true. apps so true. today. So true. But, Great. Yeah. And question number four is, how many hours of sleep do you get every night? Well, I sleep quite well. I am a firm believer in sleeping uh, sufficiently. I do not uh, slow this thing, sacrifice on that. So I would say between seven to seven and a half hours is my average every day. And I definitely don't uh, try to skimp that because even if I sleep like at uh, one or two, I would still be able to wake up at 8.30 and be absolutely fine. And sometimes work will take you that long, but I feel like if I don't get the right amount of sleep, it's what's true for me. I'm not saying that works for everyone else. Uh, the next day for me is like a complete waste. I mean, I'll end up spending eight hours, but effective work is not even three. So, so true. So true. And my last rapid fire, I mean, rapid fire question is, is um, how has pandemic changed your life? I mean, what's been happening? Has pandemic changed my life? Well, I decided to go bald during the pandemic. <laughs> so I think it changed my life in that way. Um, apart from that, I would say that it's really um, a learnt, uh, Oh, sorry, literally taught me a lot about losing a lot of preconceived notions about how a business is to be run. Like if you told me before the pandemic that you could do a startup remotely and completely successfully, I would say that's impossible. Um, I would say it's just too hard. Uh, that's one thing that I've learned, that remote is definitely doable. I still prefer in person, uh, but I know that um, remote works and flexibility is ex- absolutely necessary. Awesome. So my last question, and uh, this sums up the whole podcast, is what's something you wish you knew when you were 20? Okay, so number one thing I wish I knew when I was 20 is that you do not need to wait till even a single day more in order to do what you want to do. Uh, you Most people tell themselves that, yeah, okay, I'm doing law, I'll finish it, and then I'll do what I really want to do, maybe. You'll never do it, or it'll be 10 times harder then. Uh, and we'd be like, oh, I'm just 20. How is anyone going to trust me to run a business? It, it just will happen. If not them trusting you, you have to make sure that they do by showing them something which can't be ignored. And I feel like if being told that for a certain amount of time, like I have to go back in time and tell myself, hey, don't wait. Do whatever you want. Do it today. Um, I would say that's the number one thing. It you Anything you're telling yourself that you need to wait is just an excuse. Got it. Great. Thanks so much, Zeus, for your time. And it was really nice chatting and getting to know about you. I mean, it's it's nice to see a lawyer you know, turning up uh, and being a SaaS founder. Um, more power to you, more power to bridge up. I mean, have a great journey ahead. And it was really nice interacting with you. Thanks a lot, Joe. Really appreciate being here. And thank you for having me. That's all for today, folks. Thank you for tuning into the SaaS Universe podcast. And remember, if you're looking for non-dilutive capital to help grow your business, Efficient Capital Labs is here to help. With their unique approach, you can receive up to 75% of your projected revenue as upfront capital and all within just three days. So don't wait. Head to www.ecaplabs.com to learn more and get started today. Thank you for listening and we'll catch you next time on the show.